All right. Good morning, everybody. I didn't realize that the discussion over your favorite smell would be so lively. <laughs> it's awesome. Hey, real quick question before we get going. Anybody here ever do a bathroom remodel, like on their own? Anybody? Okay, a few hands. Okay, I need some help. We started, and we're not fully done yet. So if you want to come to my house after church, that would be great. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's going well. It's, we're not done yet. But anyway, if you've ever done a bathroom remodel, you know the interesting thing about DIY projects in general is that you learn a lot when you actually do things yourself, right? I mean, before we got into this bathroom remodel, I mean, I knew how to use a bathroom. You guys know how to use bathrooms, right? I knew how to use it. But I, I mean, I'm learning a lot of what is really going into building a bathroom. So there's something different about when you actually get into something nitty-gritty, get into building it yourself, doing it yourself. Well, today, trust me, this is relevant. Today, we're doing a, we're starting off a two-week, two-part mini-series. So just, just a really quick blip. We're going to change things up just a little bit. But we're calling this series, You Think You Know. You Think You Know. So another question, for those of you who are kids or who have ever been kids, have you ever heard or uttered the phrase or the, the saying, yeah, 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 I know, I know, to your parents? Yeah? If you're a parent, you look back and you're like, no, you don't know, otherwise I wouldn't have to say it again. <laughs> so we carry this mentality, we carry this, we don't grow out of this. Adults, let's be honest, we don't grow out of this. We, we carry the same attitude in much of life. And sometimes we bring that to the Bible. Sometimes we bring that to faith. Sometimes we bring this to church. And I am guilty of this as well, so I'm going to throw myself into this category very much so. Sometimes we come to the Bible, especially if we've heard a passage before, if we've heard a story before. I'm, I swear, because I am a... Uh, because I get to preach and I'm a pastor, I fall into this trap a lot. If someone else is preaching and they pull up a verse, I'm like, oh, I know where he's going. You ever do that? Can you relate with that? Or if someone starts talking about a familiar biblical story, you're like, okay, I kind of I know the gist of it. How many of you tune out when, it, when a passage is thrown up on the screen? How many of you just mentally just check out for a little bit and wait for the pastor to get back? I do that sometimes. I think what happens is sometimes we come to the Bible with this mentality of like, okay, I've heard this before. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. Especially for those of us who've been raised in the church. I was not raised in the church, so there's times, and my wife was, so there's been plenty of times in our relationship where I, I will find something out that is Sunday School 101 that I didn't know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, man, this was so cool. I just found that stuff. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but for me, it's so amazing and invigorating well, this whole series is about trying to push past this assumption. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of ringing from my mic. We probably don't need it too, this loud. We can just pull that down. But we're trying to push past this assumption, this attitude of when we come to the Bible. So in this two-part series, really, I think our goal with this is to really take a moment to try to reinvigorate our view of the Bible. Because I don't know about you, again, myself, I'm throwing myself in here. I assume that you're kind of like me in some ways. Uh, sometimes I'll hit a spiritual plateau, or sometimes I'll, there's just so much going on in my life, and I'll pick up the Bible, and I will just feel like I don't want to read it. I'll feel like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm kind of in, an, in a boring section right now. Like, I just don't really want to. Or I just kind of expect 
like it's going to be hard or it's not going to be applicable to my life. We want to help get back to a, a view of Scripture that's powerful, that is exciting, and to be able to see it for what it really is. We want to help you know that this book can change everything about your life. Everything. It's not irrelevant. It's not boring. It's not old news. But if we expect it to be those things, then it will be those things to us. So I want to start off with reading through Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is a verse that you've probably heard before. So don't check out and don't think you know where I'm going, okay? Hebrews 4, 12. The author of Hebrews writes, he says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, for many of us that may feel like the Bible is boring, irrelevant, or old news, the problem is that we may be unintentionally approaching this book and coming to it as if it is stagnant, as if it does not change, as if what has been said has, has been said, it's done. We approach this just like any old textbook or any other book as a source of information, which it is, but that's not all it is. We see in this passage, which you can chew on this over and over and over again and realize, okay, what does it mean for this book, the Word of God, to be alive? What does it mean for this book to be active? There's a verbs associated, right? It penetrates between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our minds and our hearts, right? This book, and it's, I mean, it's not because of this specific book, it's because these are God's words on these pages. So when we approach it that way, we see things differently. For those of us who, who are maybe hitting a plateau right now in our spiritual lives, maybe we're at a point where you know, yeah, I feel like I'm still, I love God, I want to follow him and all this stuff, but when I come to the Bible, it just feels like I'm not learning anything new. It just feels like I'm stuck. For those of you who are kind of in that standpoint, sometimes it's because we are still reading this book the same way we did 10 years ago. You realize there's different ways to read this book. There's different ways to get into it, to approach it differently, to, to see and dig in deeper to see what God wants to say to you. I'll say this, many of us may be stuck in a devotional level of our reading. Not to say that devotions are bad. Devotionals are not bad, they're great. I love them, I, I go to one often. But if we're stuck at a devotional level, what often happens is we, we start approaching the Bible as if it's just a hit for a spiritual high. So I wanna help you to realize that one, how we approach this book changes what we get from it. If you approach it from this expectation that, oh, I'm just gonna get some source of information, or if I expect it to be boring, it's, it's gonna be boring. And if you just always approach it at a devotional level, then you're missing out on what's available to you in study, right? Again, think about the bathroom. It's relevant, right? You know how to use a bathroom, but there's still so much you don't know until you actually get into it and remodel it yourself. Same thing happens when the Bible, with the Bible. Until you get into the deeper levels of study, you may not see things that are there for you. So I want to ask this question before we get into um, what I have for you this morning. How do you approach the Bible? 
You personally, think about it from, from your standpoint. How do you approach this book when you open it? You come to the Bible expecting it to be boring, expecting it to be irrelevant. You expect to just get a quick spiritual high and then get, get on with your day. Or do you expect to meet God here on these pages? Because God's here. He's spoken to us through this book. It's alive. It's active. Do you expect this book to give you real wisdom for your day, for your week, for your year? Do you expect God to speak to you in new ways? Do you expect this book to convict you and actually judge your thoughts and judge your heart and correct you? Because if you come with those expectations, that's what you're going to get. We serve a mighty, mighty big God, and he has given us his word, and it is so unbelievably acceptable to us. Acceptable. Accessible. <laughs> it should be acceptable to us, but it's accessible. So today, my whole goal with today in this two-week series is to whet your appetite a little bit. I wanna, we're going to go through six things. So if you're taking notes, I'd really encourage you to take notes on this. Six things that you can take and take with you and do in your own personal Bible study. These are just six points, six topics, but I hope more than anything this excites you and whets your appetite a little bit and gives you a glimpse of what study can look like. And then next week, we have a real treat because Steve Shoemaker, who is our newest elder, uh, some of you know, have gotten to know him a little bit, but he's gonna join me on this stage next week, and we're going to get into one major biblical story that you have heard most likely dozens of times. It's a story that even if you never attended church, you probably know it. So we're gonna get into that and see how much you really know it. So I'm really excited for that. So that's next week, but this week's just a precursor to that, and I'm gonna whet your appetite a little bit. So let's jump in. If you're writing notes, the first thing that you can take and do when you approach your Bible is expect to meet God. A little bit of what I've already been talking about, but expect to meet God on these pages. When you come, don't just flip it open and start reading a random chapter. I mean, it's fine, but how different do you think your time in the Word will be if you, before you ever open these pages, if you pray and you ask God to meet you here? If when you open, you very specifically pray through these words, Lord, speak to me through these words. What do you have for me today? If you come with that kind of approach, trust me, God speaks to you more clearly. There's often times where I will read through a, a story that I've read before and when I pray those words and come with that heart, God will show me something new that is actually very pertinent to that day, or at least something with my experiences. It's unbelievable. And a little side note on this too. Sometimes the things that God teaches you in your study, you don't need that day. You'll need it a year from now. So for those of us who come to it and feel like it's ir irrelevant, you have no idea. It could be extremely relevant for your life a year, two years, three years down the line. But expect to meet God on these pages. Whatever you do, interact with this book. Interact with God as you come to these pages. Number two, ask questions. Ask questions. This is an important one, and it's something that we don't necessarily do naturally. Ask questions. If you don't ask questions, you're not going to get answers. So we're going to use... Um, a really well-known passage. Again, I'm going to whet your appetite. We're just going to blitz through some examples. So has anybody here ever heard the, the passage where Jesus says to turn the other cheek? 
Yeah, okay. So I was just curious, I Googled, like what's the most well-known sayings of Jesus? This was right at the top. People know that Jesus said this. So let's turn to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, is where this passage shows up. Turn the other cheek. So Jesus speaks. He says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued... Oh, I'll stop there. I don't want to go much further. Yeah. Okay. Turn the other cheek also. All right, so let's, let's practice this. This is a really well-known passage. And many people assume they know what it means. But let's, let's start by asking some questions, right? Because another analogy for you, for those of you who are married or in a relationship, you know that if you don't ask questions of your partner, you're not going to get to know them very well, right? Same thing comes to the Bible. We've got to come and ask questions. So we're going to do a few roundtables. We've been doing this a lot recently since we have these tables. So I'm going to give you a question, and I want you to discuss this amongst the people at your table for a minute or two, and then we'll reconvene. So as you read this, I don't know if this stuck out to you. It sticks out to me. Why do you think that Jesus specified the right cheek? If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other. So go ahead, talk amongst yourselves for a little bit. What do you think? All right, any thoughts, any ideas? Anybody want to be brave enough to stand up and shout out their answer? Any guesses? We got one over here on this table? <laughs> okay. All right. That's interesting. Okay, so thinking that the left hand is unclean and would be an insult. All right, any other guesses? Yeah, Dan. This is a really good question, but I'm just curious. As a Christian, thinking if I slap somebody, I'm normally right-handed. Most people are right-handed. Yeah. For me to hit somebody on the left, I got a backhand. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe that was a particularly bad insult. That yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I want my friend Kyler. Come on up here, man. I'm going to pick you out. All right, this is my new friend Kyler. 
Okay. What's up, man? How you doing? Cool. All right. So think about it. Jesus is saying, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, right? So that for, for Kylie, that's right here. So I've got two options, right? Left hand or right hand. Dan pointed it out. Most people today and back then were right-handed. So what's he talking about? He's talking about a backhanded slap, right? There's a reason there. A backhanded slap, and there's, there's an aspect that is very similar to our culture today. That's pretty disrespectful. You see a backhanded slap when someone is wanting to put someone in their place and say, I have authority over you. You need to get in your place. And it's typically in a very bad situation, right? No, I mean, hopefully none of you are back, backhand slapping anybody. So, all right, cool. Thanks, man. You can step down. Um, but, yeah, let's give a round of applause. All right. So, um, the second, or the third point that I have, and we're going to continue with this example. The third point I have is when you come to the Bible, recognize that there may be some cultural differences. And so here's an instance where, okay, you can kind of see a couple things if you really ask the right questions and get there, but there may be more to the story, right? You may not even know what the cultural differences are, but it might give you a, an onus to say, okay, you know what, maybe there's something here. I'm gonna go do some research. Well, Josh, your table was really close. Um, there is, if you do some research, you can find that there is an idea in, in ancient Jewish culture of a pure hand and an unclean hand. It was your dominant hand. If your dominant hand, that was considered your pure hand. Your non-dominant hand was your unclean hand, and that's the hand that you would do unclean activities with, right? Fill in the blank. I don't know <laughs> what's in there. So when Jesus says, think about this. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what is that person doing? What is Jesus telling that person to do? Okay, if you just backhand slapped me on my right cheek, I'm going to turn my left. You now have two more options right? Do another backhanded slap with your left hand, your unclean hand, which would be problematic in that society. Nobody would do that. It would potentially make you unclean. You'd have to go through some ritual purity, stuff like that. Or use your right hand again, but you either do an open hand slap or a punch, which subtly communicates a fight amongst equals. You see, it changes the meaning of the story a little bit because we see that Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. In other words, don't seek revenge, right? If someone gets to you, don't seek to give them back exactly what they gave to you. But he also doesn't say, be a doormat and let people do whatever the heck they want to you or your family. There is a level of resistance here. It's nonviolent, but it's also, it, this, this form of resistance can also be done in love. Have you ever asked the question, can you resist someone or fight back and still love the person you're fighting back against. Jesus offers a third way. Like I said, I'm just whetting your appetite, so we're going to blitz through another one. But like, hopefully that excites you. You can find stuff like this on your own. Number four, look for connections with other passages. Look for connections with other passages, because the Bible is chock full of connections. Stories and passages are often referenced, quoted, and alluded to all the time in all different parts. And often you see the same exact story presented in different ways, right? You definitely get this in the Gospels. There's four Gospels. There's a lot of stories that are repeated and, and some details are slightly different. For example, that passage we just read in, in Mark, the right cheek, that word right only shows up in Matthew. There's another account that doesn't have it in there, right? So if you just read that other account, I think it's in Luke, then you might miss that detail. But if you compare and find the connections, you might be able to see more. So ask questions along those lines as well. 
So for this one, we're going to use the example of the Ten Commandments. How many of you know that there are actually two different accounts of the Ten Commandments? Do you know that? Is that new for anybody? Sometimes you do, I mean, sometimes you just don't know these things. It's okay. But if you ask questions, you might find out. So there's two different accounts, one in Exodus chapter 20 and one in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So here's my second round table question for you. And actually, before I get to it, people online, I forgot to mention you, but you got the online chat. That's your round table. So I really encourage you to jump on there and talk amongst yourselves there as well. But round table number two, what's the difference? What's the difference between these two accounts of the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You can cheat. Open your Bibles. <laughs> When you think you found it, raise your hand. Let me know. All right, Dan, you got it? So it looks like Deuteronomy 5 adds on the 10th commandment, you shall not uh, covet your neighbor's wife, and the other one didn't have I think it's in there. Good try. I think there's a little bit of order difference. Yeah, but it's still there. I'm looking for something different. Tanner, you got it? Bingo, there it is. Did you notice there's a different reason given for why they should keep the Sabbath? So let's take a look at that real quick. In Exodus 20, verse 11, it says, keep the Sabbath for... In six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. But in Deuteronomy 5, 15, right after it says, keep the Sabbath, it says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Interesting, right? Different reason. So, opens up for more questions, right? Why is it different? Well, I'll give this one to you. If you know the Old Testament a little bit, or if you do some extensive reading throughout all of it, you know, you may know, and comes to this, this reality that, I mean, these are given at two different points in history. So in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are given right after they've been delivered from Egypt. They've just been delivered from Egypt, from slavery. They're at Mount Sinai. Mo Moses goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down. That's when it's given. And the reason is rooted in creation, because God rested on the seventh day. But in Deuteronomy 5, they have been wandering the desert for 40 years. And now they're getting ready to enter the promised land, finally, to live in the place that God has set apart for them. And meanwhile, 
again, if you read through it, you see it over and over. It's a constant theme in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Israelites constantly complain and constantly long to go back to Egypt. They long for their slavery because their freedom was harder than they expected. Interesting. So you can probably come to this conclusion, okay, well, maybe God is trying to bake in a reminder for them They're finally getting to the point where they can enter the promised land. He wants to remind them, you are not slaves. Stop trying to get back to those set of circumstances. You are free. I freed you. Start living as though you are free. And you'd think that that shouldn't have to be that obvious of a reminder. You think, well, okay, obviously people don't like slavery, right? But how often do we need that reminder? You realize that you are no longer slaves to your sin. And yet, how often do you live your life as if you are controlled by your sin? Too many Christians walk around just feeling defeated. In reality, we're free. Galatians 5.1 says, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. So live in that. And so I, I've, one of my favorite analogies for this is, it's like, it's, it's like you're in a jail cell, and Jesus walks along and unlocks your cell, opens the door, and walks away. You are free to leave, but sometimes we've grown so accustomed to our cell that we just stay there. So you can see there's, there's a level of depth in finding connections that might bring out new nuances to the story, but also that can give you more personal application for your own life. All right, I'm just whetting your appetite, so we're going to the next one. Number five, historical and geographical context matters. Now, this seems pretty studious or, you know, higher language a little bit, but all this is to say is that, hey, this book was written at a specific point in time, specific places, I mean, a lot of different times and a lot of different places, and that, that matters. When this was written, where it was written, who it was written to matters. It changes things. And if we come to the Bible expecting everything to make sense. This kind of goes along with the cultural aspects earlier, right? But if we just come along and expect everything to make perfect sense to our 21st century Western American minds, we're just gonna miss a lot. Because this was written in a real context, a real place, by real people, to real people. So our example for this one is gonna be Revelation 3. So Revelation 3, this is the famous lukewarm passage. You may have heard it before. Um, I've heard it preached several times before in my lifetime, but Revelation 3, starting in verse 14 through 17. So this is Jesus talking to John in a vision. And he says to John, he says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, so round table number three. What do you think that this passage is talking about? What do you think God means by the word lukewarm? Go ahead.
right, any thoughts on this? What, is, what does God mean here by lukewarm? What is Jesus saying? Tepid? Well, that's just a different word for lukewarm. <laughs> Good job. Synonyms, yeah, okay. <laughs> Riley? Oh, man, it's right there for you. So it sounds like you're reading off my notes here. So if you didn't hear that, if you didn't hear that online, then I'll, I'm going to tell you again. But anyway, so hey, there's a great plug of why you should get a study Bible. Study Bibles are awesome because they got a ton of extra notes just baked right into the Bible. I mean, they're not inspired, but they're great, great, great study tools. Anyway, so if you look at this, the, the I'd say slightly more traditional teaching from Western Americans is, oh, well, hot probably seems like a good thing and cold's probably a bad thing. So he's saying that hot is like a, an on-fire, passionate Christian and cold is a non-believer. And God's getting frustrated with the lukewarm Christian. You ever heard that phrase? The lukewarm Christian. Someone who's wishy-washy, who's indecisive, who's kind of in the middle, who doesn't really know what's going on. And God would rather that person be a non-believer than wishy-washy in the middle. You ever heard that? Okay, well, that's wrong. <laughs> It's wrong. Because there's a place mentioned, and if you, if you take note of, again, the historical, the geographical aspects of the story, this is being written to a church in Laodicea. Sometimes we love to breeze over tough names, words, places, because we're like, ah, you know, it's really far away. I don't understand the culture. I'll just breeze on by. But if you stop and make note of it and ask questions, you'll, you'll understand some more, right? So if we look at Laodicea, if you do a Google search or if you have a great study Bible, it'll help you understand that geographically speaking, to the north of Laodicea was a place called Hierapolis, and they had a really healthy hot spring. It was really good for bathing in, for like spa treatments and stuff like that. And then to the south was Colossae, and they had really, really fresh cold water, really good for drinking. Laodicea is right in the middle. They have terrible water. It's like California. They have terrible water. They have to pipe it in. And this is ancient culture. It's kind of cool. In ancient culture, they still had aqueducts and stuff. They had an aqueduct that collected water from Colossae six miles south and brought it up to them. But by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. It was tepid. Good word. It was gross. It was really gross. I mean, even parts in Colorado. How's the water in Thornton, Josh and Grace? bad? Josh gives a big thumbs down. So we know, we know this today. Water is not the same everywhere you go. And so he's saying this to this church in Laodicea with an analogy that they get very, very clearly. Lukewarm is bad, and both hot and cold are good. So hot and cold are not two ends of a spectrum with lukewarm right in the middle. You've got hot and cold. They are both good. They are both beneficial. They are both wonderful. Lukewarm is the opposite. Nobody wants lukewarm, gross, untreated water. So the point is not, are you passionate enough? 
The point is, is your faith moving you to a beneficial relationship with God, something that actually produces good, beneficial fruit for you and for those around you. You see the difference? That makes a big difference. Because I don't know how many Christians have been shamed for not being passionate enough, not being on fire enough, and that's done some hurt. So again, doing a little bit of research, asking some little questions, making note, and not just assuming that you know what it means can make all the difference. Okay, here's my last point. Very similar. Number six is literary context matters. Literary, literary context, very simple way just to understand where does it fall in the Bible, right? The New Testament's different from the Old Testament. Where, where is it? That makes a big difference. Literary context. So for this roundtable, we're going to look at the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. You can turn there if you want. Um, I think many of you know it well enough. You could probably just think about it. But Luke chapter 15 is where it's found. So I'm just going to ask you, the prodigal son story, it's Jesus' longest parable. Why do you think Jesus told that story? Why do you think Jesus told the story of the prodigal son? So talk amongst yourselves. All right, any thoughts? Why did Jesus tell this parable? Why do you think he told it? Oh, it's quiet. <laughs> yeah, Dan. I think to show the heart of the Father. Show the heart of the Father. Yeah, because he was being accused of eating with all these sinners, right? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, AJ. Yeah, so the older brother shows up after the, the younger, right? There's a, a chapter there, or, or uh, an act in that story there where he's upset because he's always been there. And then Josh mentioned the father running after his son, just the outlandish display of the love for his son. Good, yeah, Ken. 
Yeah. Jab at the Pharisees. Okay, you're reading my notes. <clears throat> so let's get into it, right? I'd say more, th- more often than not, when I hear the prodigal son story brought up, it's to emphasize God's love, which is true. And this is absolutely the best picture of the love of the Father that we have. That's a huge part of that. I'm not, I don't want to diminish that by any means. Jesus' teaching about the heart of the Father is 100% true, but is that the real reason why he told it? So, AJ, I'm glad you brought it up. There's a second act that often gets ignored. Sometimes we just chop the story short right after the father comes and says, my son was lost, he was, or he was dead and now he's come back to life. He was lost and now he's found, so the party began. Sometimes we just stop it right there, but it keeps going. It says, meanwhile, the older son, it talks about the older son. There's an older son who refuses to accept his younger brother because of his sin, because of what he's done. He, re- he sits there proud at his own accomplishments is what he has done for his family, and he refuses to accept his younger brother. Then if we look at the literary context as well, that's the back end of it. And if we look at the very beginning of Luke 15, we see, well, actually, if you look at the whole chapter, Jesus tells three stories back to back. And they're all very similar. The prodigal son's a lot longer, but they're three back to back to back. But if you go right at the very beginning of Luke 15, it says this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So, Jesus told them this story. There's the reason. Jesus is telling the story to correct the Pharisees. That's the point. That's the main point. God's love is absolutely an integral part of this because we have to understand the heart of the Father to understand this. But the literary context shows us that, look, the major problem Jesus is trying to poke at is people propping themselves up as being more righteous than another, dismissing people and refusing to accept them because of their sin. That's the point. So I wonder, again, I think an application point clearly is God's love for us, right? But when we come to this story, our first and primary application shouldn't necessarily be, oh, yes, Jesus, you love me so much, and I'm so, I'm just going to revel in that. That's good. But the main point is, am I a Pharisee? Who am I looking at in my life and judging or looking down or demeaning because their sin is something that I deem to be worse than mine or different? That's the real check. Literary context can change the way we read a passage. You see that? If we put it back in its context, we can see, okay, right back to that, four, that uh, Hebrews 4.12 passage. It judges. Scripture, the Word of God judges our hearts, right? This may be an instance where God might be trying to get your, atten- your t- attention and say, who are you refusing to accept? Who is it? Is it someone on the other end of the political spectrum? Is it someone who doesn't agree with your points of view? Is it someone that is a part of the LGBTQ um, identity, somewhere in that realm, right? Is, what is it? I mean, the church has done this very well over the years. If we've pointed at another group, unfortunately, and we've condemned them and demeaned them and said, we will not accept them. It's a check. Who are you? Who are you to refuse to accept someone? 
All right, so I gave you six points. <clears throat> and we just blitzed through a bunch of examples. I'm really excited for next week uh, because Steve is going to join me on stage and we're going to go in depth on one major biblical story. But I hope more than anything, this whets your appetite a little bit, gets you excited to get back to your Bible. If you come and ask questions, I, actually, before that, I'll put those six on, all six of those on the screen just if you want to get those back down and write notes. But at the very least, if you come expecting to meet God and ask questions, he will speak to you differently. The Bible will not become boring to you. It will not become irrelevant to you. Ask questions. Do the hard work. If you've never done a bathroom remodel, right? That's a lot of work. That's what I'm finding out right now. The bathroom remodel is a lot of work, and I am very thankful that I've got people in my, in my life that I can ask questions. My dad's been helping me out a lot. Uh, Mark Arnett even just swung by my house Monday morning last week and dropped off a bunch of tools and some advice. So you need to ask questions, right? Come to people that know more than you. Grab a study Bible. I mean, we have the internet. You can Google stuff. <laughs> but if you put in the work yourself, do-it-yourself mentality, you may make mistakes. It may take you way longer than listening to a message. But if you do it for yourself, you will learn more than you will possibly imagine. And you'll see that God will speak to you directly in ways that he might not speak to someone else. So I want to encourage you, don't think that you know this book. Don't assume things when you come to it. Open yourself up. Come expecting to meet God. And just see what he will do. So as we get into this last... Um, worship session. I'll pray for us, but I just want to encourage you just to lean in to who God is. Know that he is alive. He is active. He does speak to us through this word, and he wants a deeper relationship with you. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word that you've given us, this unbelievable gift to hear from you, to, to discover your wisdom and how you have created us, how you've designed us and how you want us to live in the world. But more than anything, Lord Jesus, help us to know your love for us. Help us to, to model your heart to the world. And if there's any specific application point this morning that stuck out to us, I pray that you would help us to put that into action. Help us to not look down on others, but to love them with the love that you have for us. So Jesus, we praise you, we worship you. We want to see your will be done on this earth. So help us to become more and more people of the book, people that know our Bibles, that are listening for your voice, that are pursuing you with everything that we have. So we thank you, Jesus, and we give you the rest of this morning, this day, this week, this month. We ask that your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.